Welcome to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast, where we celebrate the craft of poetry. Each week, we feature interviews with incredible poets and artists, including Olivia Gatwood and A.E. Stallings, and original poetry read by the authors. I'm your host, James Moorhead, poet laureate of Dublin, California, and author of Canvas and Portraits of Red and Gray. Tyler Mills is the author of City Scattered, winner of the Snowbound Chapbook Award, as well as Hawk Parable, winner of the Akron Poetry Prize, Tung Lear, winner of the Crab Orchard Series in Poetry First Book Award, and Low Budget Movie, co-authored with Kendra DiColo and winner of the Diode Editions Chapbook Prize. Her poems have appeared in The New Yorker, The Guardian, The New Republic, and Poetry, and her essays in AGNI, Brevity, River Teeth, and The Rumpus. She teaches for Sarah Lawrence College's Writing Institute and the Provincetown Fine Arts Work Center's 24 Pearl Street, is a founding editor of The Account, and lives in Brooklyn. Tyler, welcome to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Very, very excited to have you here and talk about your book. So your new book, City Scattered, is built around four voices. Uh, to give readers con or listeners context, uh, summarize the device you use in the book and how that approach came together. Sure. Um, so there are four voices in the book. One is a choral voice, so a collective voice, and that is a conceit, um, imagines that it's being played on a Victrola. The book is in large part set in the Weimar era of Berlin. And so I was imagining a kind of like mechanized chorus sort of as like interrupting and commenting on the actions of the book. And there are other persona in, in the book as well. There's an I self woman in Berlin voice that speaks. And that voice comes from an imagined um, woman in Berlin at that time working a white collar job um, during that period of hyperinflation and kind of thinking about kind of the issues that she would have dealt with at that time. And um, there's also an interlocutor, interlocutor voice who is a more contemporary speaker interrupting the scenes to comment on what it means to be writing about this subject. And then there's a voice of the study itself, which adapts and borrows and engages with language from um, Siegfried Krakauer's study, The Salaried Masses. And he was an, an ethnographer from the Frankfurt School and also wrote film theory, um, who studied wage laborers at that time and was interested in the idea of like the masses and um, kind of that collective identity and, and was troubled by it. And he included the voices of women in his study, which I found really interesting. And so that was sort of my inroads into this project. And so there's also this voice that is part of that study. So I think your your book is a wonderful example that I think, and I brought this up in some of my other interviews that people don't realize is poets do a lot of research um, to either augment something they know something about, or to use it as a, a launching pad for something they know nothing or very little about. And um, given neither of us were alive during that era, um, the use of borrowed language that you use in some of the poems in the book, uh, this study of wage labor that you started to touch on, what, what originally drew you to the source material? What, what did the source material 
come first and then you thought, oh, there's there's an idea for a poem in here? Or did you have this inkling of an idea for a poem and then and found this material as a result of the research? I was always interested in that period of history and in art. Um, and I ended up at the, the Neue Gallery in New York uh, on a layover. I was living in New Mexico at the time and was coming back east to see family. And, um, and so I was drawn to this Berlin Metropolis exhibit because I wanted to see Hannah Hook's collages. And then of course, I, I was just um, enamored with everything else about the exhibit, the study of the city. I'd been to Berlin um, and, and I ended up splurging on the exhibition catalog, which was extremely heavy and beautiful and like, you know, brought that on the plane um, and was reading it closely and then ended up discovering Siegfried Krakauer, Krakauer's uh, text there and then became interested in it and then ordered the study itself and then ended up reading it. And then I found myself wanting to write poems from the study. Um, and at first the project was not working at all. It was mm -hmm. really in my eyes a failure and I just wouldn't let it go. Um, the poems I first wrote were very static kind of dead, um, too married to the text, not really filled with the life of the lyric voice mm -hmm. that I think a book really needs to breathe and live. Um, and I wasn't um, allowing enough of my imagination into the project. So I needed to have a reckoning with myself about that. And I uh, set it aside for a while, then came back to it, set it aside, came back to it, and then kind of uh, breathed more life into the book that way. So it, it came from a personal exploration and interest. Um, and then that had its own sort of journey as well. I think it's so wonderful that you talk about how it wasn't working at all and you had to step away from it and come back. And I, I certainly encourage listeners that are struggling with an idea to that time and space can recharge an idea. If you really believe in the core idea, you just have to give it time to emerge in its form. I've definitely had that uh, with a poem that was set to music last year where it was very it was very structured and rhymed and it just was fighting the material and then i set it aside for months came back and it just came to life so yeah it's amazing what happens in the back of your mind so it's great to hear you say that so your your poetry employs empty space very effectively so of course you're listening to this uh people are listening to this you'll have to go buy the book to see it uh, i certainly encourage you to do so um in my poetry i love playing with how words appear on the page as much as how they sound what is your approach to visualizing your poetry Mm, that's a really good question. For this book, uh, I ended up in the I Saw Woman in Berlin voice, double spacing the poems to allow more of that white space or pausing or breath into the work. And that's not really something that I do across the other books that I've written. So it was a rather new technique for me. And I felt that I needed that for this project to really invite me to focus on animating the voice because I was also imagining it sort of like a performance. I mean, I call the book a cabaret <laughs> for voices. I mean, it it's not like a, it could not be performed. Like if like people wanted to stage it or something, like it's not a functioning <laughs> cabaret, but it takes its conceit from that idea. And so I wanted to almost like imagine um, the voice being able to speak it and, uh, and, and energize it and enliven it in, in the way that, um, poems and persona I can interact. Cool. So when constructing your poems, where do you tend to begin with an idea or a phrase or an image? For example, the phrase, the world is not as it is, but as it appears, the splendid view of the city by night, star spangled, 
like denial. And that's from your poem, The Study, The Delicate Language of Signs. That's such a beautiful line. It struck me as something that could have been the spark of a poem. When, where do your poems tend to begin? And I realize this is, this is going to have many varied answers. Yes, it does. I mean, when I'm um, thinking about poems and relationships with texts, I often will find myself snagging on a phrase from the text that I just can't let go of. And I believe that there was a phrase in there. I mean, it's been a long time since I started that poem, so I, I can't exactly remember the particular words. But um, it, sometimes it's a phrase where I'm like, oh, this is so odd or like weirdly enchanting. Or, you know, if I like lifted this away, I feel like um, it invites me to play with it and say something new with it and also like reflect even more deeply on the text from an artistic standpoint. Um, other times I, you know, I'm walking around in the world and just a line will come to me or a title. Um, yesterday I was taking a walk and I had to stop and sometimes I'll just text myself titles mm -hmm. so that I can just get it down when I have it. Or sometimes I'll get the snippet of a first stanza just when I'm walking around. It's almost like the voice appears in the ear, um, at, sometimes out of nowhere, but often in relationship to something I might have seen or smelled or touched or tasted. Um, so I think it's a just it's about being in the world and being open to artistic possibilities, and I, I really try to catch those um, glimpses of things when they when they emerge. And and I think that writing poems is a mysterious process. I know that this book is by and large, I guess, a project book. I put it in quotes. I know so many people <laughs> like to argue about what project books are and if they're good and if they're bad. And I mean, I don't know. I I don't know. Um, but I even though this book has its its theme and its uh, structure and it's like um, driving idea, it really came from that place of mystery for me, um, that kind of interior voice, that urgent speaking voice that kind of comes to the ear and says something. Yeah, I think that you're uh, one one thing I've since I've been writing poetry for decades, and in the I went for the longest time hand writing only by hand, and I would try to have a notebook with me, but that wasn't always practical. And I eventually switched to writing on my phone, so I can write at night when the lights are off, and I can do it in dark mode on my phone. And and yeah. then when I'm walking around, yeah, if I have an idea, I'll just uh, tell my wife, oh, hold on a second, she'll know why because I'm jotting down a phrase or an idea or an image in my phone so that I won't lose sight of it because they're fleeting if you don't write them down somewhere. So I certainly encourage poets that are listening uh when you have that little spark write it down bookmark it put it in your calendar come back to it later because you'll forget it otherwise at least i will if i don't write it absolutely down. and then if you can create that space of making later with your notebook you can pull that up and, and then allow yourself the time to create something from it if you find yourself not wanting to finish the poem on the phone or whatever like you can handwrite it out right after. right exactly um, you just don't want to lose those those little gems those sparks yeah. So um, this might contradict something you just said, but as I was reading the book, it's hard not to think of it being interpreted as theater. Perhaps I'm biased mm -hmm. because of the subtitle Cabaret for Four Voices, and I love the musical Cabaret. It's so powerful. And the opening line of the book, I wake, put on a silk slip, a wool skirt, and cut past the building bomb to rubble in the war. I mean, you kind of said you don't think of this as theater, but could you think of this as theater maybe with some you know, necessary modifications to make it theatrical. Well, thank you for saying that. I mean, that means a lot to me. And I, I'm glad you feel that way. It's something that I've been worrying about. And I, I was wondering, would it confuse people or not? Um, if someone wanted to perform it? Yes, I would say, absolutely. I, I mean, I would love to see it that way. Um, and I think that 
it could be done. I mean, there are these very distinct voices, um, and I really tried to ground them in place and time and with texture and lighting and uh, and all of that. Well, I, I'll, I'll, what would also came to mind is I saw um, a Berkeley theater uh, in a series called, I think, Taking Back the Leads, and it was uh, a, it was a reading of the play Glengarry Glen Ross, which is a terrific play, but it was mm-hmm. all performed by women. And it's a play mm-hmm. that is excess, excre- incredibly male and all the leads are, are basically every character is male. So all women performed it. And it was a magical thing and it wasn't staged. It was just them sitting on chairs performing the 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 voices. And uh, th- that might be, I think that would that's what I was thinking of is just four Thank performers you. sitting on high stools doing a reading and, and then really getting into the characters. So just the thought. That'd be, ama- that'd be amazing. If yeah. someone wanted to do yes. it, I would There's be a very listener, listener out there. The show notes will have links. Um, so the vignettes in different forms throughout the book create empathy with the struggles of workers in a collapsing economy. Phrases such as waiting for unemployment to open with marks in their pockets, losing value as the shadows shift. I mean, talk about how relevant that is right now. Uh, and, the, and what's happening in the world. What did you learn going through the process of research for this book, which you started talking about, but maybe go a little deeper on the things that you really took away that you didn't know before you started the research? Well, I knew, um, I knew about the era itself and hyperinflation, but I didn't quite understand just what it what it would mean. Like mm-hmm. children were playing with cash and it meant absolutely nothing and just what it yeah it like just stacking it into these like pyramid play structures where they would turn it into kites and fly it in the park that kind of thing like it it like it had that little meaning and as i was reading about the um women who were wage laborers at the time they had this odd position and and they had privilege of that time where they could renegotiate their wages throughout the day because um because of how quickly everything was changing. So then they they could kind of continue to reassert their status and be able to mm-hmm. buy the bread that someone else who might've been waiting in line all day could not buy because the price would have radically increased by the time they got to the front. And I so that was something that I didn't understand um, going into this process. And, and it's something that I was thinking about a lot. And I started writing the book um, right at the time when the... Um, um, when when Trump was running, actually. And so I was thinking a lot about that and just disturbed by that. Um, and I, I don't know. I think that that, uh, that whole time period was part of what went into this book, even though it's not really, I don't know, obviously visible. Right, it, right. To help poets that are not writing about themselves, which a lot of poems are anchored in something that you are very personal. In this case, you know, it's research based and you're getting inside the heads of of in, in, of in, of uh, compiled characters, of fictional characters. What is your advice for poets that are tackling a project like that, where they're they're creating a fictional voice that has to come to life as though it's your own voice? I would say don't assume you know what you're talking about going in. Don't assume you know the persona, even as you're doing research. Allow mystery and what you might not know into the voice so that it reads as real and so that you are open to um, your own fallibility 
as the contemporary person trying to write about the past because it's an impossible task. I mean, it is really like looking into the void and wondering what comes back. Um, and yeah, so that's what I would suggest. Cool. Uh, so um, many of the poems in City Scattered are visual. We've spoken about that. Placement of words and empty space is important. In, in particular, the second I Self Woman in Berlin poem. Um, how do you approach reciting poems with such a strong visible visual element? Hmm. I, I try to invite the poem to live in the voice. And I believe that the poem has two lives and one is in the printed mm. page and then one is in the voice. And I think back to how poetry is one of the oldest forms of human communication along with music well, and the visual arts. But, you know, these things are go all in hand in hand and that um, the printed page, it's its, it's, its own thing. Um, but when I'm reading the poem, I want the voice to be alive. And so I think about that and I try to invite the listener to perceive perhaps some of the gaps that might exist on the page, but I don't try to force it in a way that would make it not feel like, um, like a lived and breathing being. Yeah, I think you definitely have to, you have to view the recited poem and the written poem as separate entities based on the same words. Uh, Olivia Gatwood in the interview with her, she's a wonderful performance poet and written poet. And yeah, they're, they're, they're two different things and you have to be intentional. So I, I think that's great. It's, it's going to be, I'm going to be, I'm excited to hear you read your poems in a little bit that I've read on the page, but haven't heard in your voice. So um, a tricky challenge in poetry is tackling a subject where you have a point of view without that statement or belief or opinion, making the poem too concrete. Um, you very effectively combine concrete images and examples from the time period while leaving each poem open to multiple interpretations. How did you approach editing this book to achieve that balance? That, yeah, that was a struggle. Um, and I wanted to make sure that the goals of the book were clear without being overstated. Um, I, I thought that the contemporary voice coming in to speak and comment on the study was important and that was a later addition into the book. Um, and I, in the interlocutor poem called What This Study Ignores, I think does important work with that. Um, and in that poem, there is the, the gold memorial stones, the stumbling stones that are in Berlin of the Holocaust um, victims, the, the families murdered. And, and I think that um, I really wanted to, make space for that and the risks of that. And, and Siegfried Krakauer was worried about um, what mass culture could be leading to and the, the extreme politics of the time. And he, he ended up fleeing to Paris first and then um, emigrated to the US and then lived the rest of his days in the US and in New York um, to escape the, the Nazis because he was Jewish. Um, my spouse is Jewish and my daughter is half Jewish. And so I was thinking a lot about this when I was writing the book and what's at stake in this project. Mm -hmm. um, so I wanted to allow that in into that space. Yeah, I think that was a very clever device that meant you could be very lyrical in much of the book and yet have this more concrete elements come in without it being jarring. So I thought that was, uh, that was a clever device and something I'm gonna keep in the back of my mind for when I have a similar situation. Um, Thank you. So I've asked several guests on this podcast how they decide on the order of your poems. Well, in most cases, poetry books are co truly collections. They are a series of disconnected things. 
written over a period of time and then you have to figure out how the heck to make them have some order where they weren't written with that order as in mind this is a little different though as you mentioned whether it's a project book or something where this is a this is a not as much of a collection as a you know it's a book written in poetic form but still i'm sure there were thoughts about you know what the order was what gaps you had to fill you mentioned the interlocutor coming in late like uh, what was what's your process to doing that of getting the book into its final ordered edited form Yes, that, I mean, that is a question. I, I'm remembering back and I think I had this very short poem in here where um, a woman was interviewed about, oh, it's very short, mm -hmm. the study, Wealth Doesn't Attract Me. I asked her to tell me something about her life on a train to the suburbs, but you can already find all that in novels. She said, originally I had that poem as the very first poem in the book. Um, and it took me a while to realize that it just wasn't working like that. And I felt that I needed something to set the stage and place us more clearly in time. Um, and in the persona voice, the I self woman in Berlin voice, which uh, was my like imagined persona. I thought that starting with that voice would start the book more strongly. So I, I scattered the pages all over the floor and did that thing where you yeah. try out different poems next to one another. And I think there's a there's a bit of mystery there. And I think, you know, trying to find motifs that speak to one another, but to make sure that your poems don't become too static, if you have poems that are too similar grouped together, um, I think constantly leading the reader, but also surprising them uh, is something that I try to think about when I'm arranging any of the books that I've written. You know, it's interesting. That's exactly what I did with my first book. It's what uh, what every person I've interviewed, I ask this question that does the same thing. They print it out, put it on their family room floor and just have to have it manipulated in space. And you just cannot do that on a computer. You, mm -hmm. you need to be able to see it spread out and group them. And I encourage anyone who's struggling with ordering the book, print it out and put it out on the floor or put it up on a wall or whatever you want. But you've got to see it in physical space. Great. Well, now I'm excited to turn the mic over to you to read a couple of selections from City Scattered. Interlocutor. What the study ignores. The study ignores coal staining the sheets like ink as they hang out the window, twisting in the wind down the brick wall. Bitters swirl into a goblet in the club where office workers dance after filing paper all day while their personalities waited outside like bicycles. This study ignores the bubble that formed around them all like the shell of a golden egg. And how can one do an ethnography when the word wraps like string around the tissue of the intestine and the guts of the country? I've stepped on gold memorial stones in the street where mothers and fathers and aunts and uncles and daughters and sons and cousins I, Self, Woman in Berlin, 1930. If you ask me later if I knew, the city scattered its sequins like starlight over the floors of the clubs. If the city swallowed death like the crescent of a melon. If the city coughed out coal powder in the swirling eddies of the sky, the sunset like ostrich feathers framing the face of a movie star. I would say, no, no. But if you ask me if I negotiated my wages so my fingertips would not touch the trolley floor when I dropped my glove and saw the stretched tongues of the shoes chewed and stained and gapped at the heel, so I could not buy a hot cross bun at lunch though the marks shot up 
Though the crust shone like a new coin and could not be touched by the woman with my face who waited until the line brought her to the front and the dough smelled like salt water and milk and her hands warmed the paper worth the same as the dream. She whispered into the hair of her daughter as she woke her and the lapis lazuli light the night pulled into the room. What would you want me to say? I starched my blouse and practiced the answers to all the questions and ribboned my curls and yes, I bought the knot of bread. Her eyes tracked the curve of the curb where pigeons gathered and I broke off pieces at my desk while the sky swallowed everything whole. Wonderful. It's so wonderful to hear how you interpret uh, the poems when you recite them. Um, the plight of the workers you profile, in particular, the lead women in Berlin, resonates today, nearly 100 years later, with the great resignation in the news daily and income inequality. Uh, when writing these poems, did you consciously combine the present with this with the historic? I was thinking a lot about the conversation between the present and the historic, but I there there wasn't any way I could possibly foresee that we would be in our present time when this book would be published, that it would land now during during the Great Resignation and and our period of inflation and um, you know war. Um, so hmm, no, so. Yes and no. Uh, <laughs> yeah. My answer. Yeah, that's true because by the time a book is published, the the poems were written uh, year, probably a minimum year years ago, and so yes, it's just uh, it's coincidence. Although it's a recurring cycle that happens over and over and over again. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. I have a similar situation with my upcoming book, Portraits of Red and Gray. It's the mm -hmm. cornerstone of it is a long series of poems about a trip I took as a teenager to the USSR. Uh, mm -hmm. during high school. So and I wrote this a long time ago um, and just happened to found a moment where I can publish it, totally not realizing that it would land right during this incredible relevance about the Soviet Union and what life was like there and how that, mm -hmm. that relates to things happening now. So yeah, that, that, that's, um, and maybe that's almost in a way better that you wrote it without that current context so that it becomes more timeless and not mm. connected to something too present. Yeah. Mm. What troubled me about the, this time period, the more that I researched it, was just how precarious everything was mm. and how things were in the process of changing very rapidly, but before that change had occurred. And I found it so troubling and fascinating to think about. So I think that when I was um, reflecting on the contemporary time in relationship to that, I was sort of trying to imagine living in that space of not not quite knowing what's coming next or just how bad things are going to get. Um, yeah, I think that that is a lesson that I take away from the book is that don't assume the status quo in many ways can be very stubborn to change, but the status mm -hmm. quo can also change very quickly if you take it for granted. And uh, the changes that happened in that time period were so dramatic and rapid and uh, I suspect the lead up to it, there was a lot of denial that things could change so rapidly. And there okay. you go. So okay. so what are your plans uh, this year as the book goes to print in April? Both what are you planning to do to support the book? And also, of course, the book was written years ago and now you're working on lots of other things. So what maybe a combination of what are you going to do to in the business of supporting the book? And then um, that that 
fans of yours can look forward to. And then what are you working on next? Mm. I'm giving readings for the book. I'm going to AWP and I'm on a panel about chapbooks and I'm giving a reading for the Writing Institute at Sarah Lawrence, an offsite reading that I invite everyone to. Um, and then some online events as well. And I'm going to be publishing or publishing, posting a list of those very soon so that if people wanted to zoom in and, and drop in that they could. Um, so I have a bunch of those lined up for the spring for this book. Um, I'm also writing just a book of lyric poems, um, poems that didn't fit into this book, didn't fit into my last book, that I've, and, and new pieces uh, that sort of are reflecting on our current time, but also are more, much more personal. Um, I'm working on a nonfiction book as well that's in conversation with Hawk Parable, my second book of poems, and so I'm doing a lot of historical research for that about um, the um, history of the atomic bomb uh, as, as it relates to kind of more personal things in my family. So. Yes, I'm doing that too. Cool. Lots of cool things underway. Well, Tyler, thank you so much for joining the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. This was really, um, really wonderful. And I encourage everyone when the book comes available to pick up City Scattered. It's a wonderful and thoughtful read that will stick with you for a long time. Thank you. Thank you. Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast is written and produced by James Moorhead. You can follow me on Twitter at Dublin Ranch, subscribe to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast, and follow us on viewlesswings.com or on Instagram at viewlesswings. <laughs>